0: You know, and I'd like to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning with you. And you know, to talk about the Holy Spirit requires the Holy Spirit. To preach the Word requires the Holy Spirit. So much that we do requires the Holy Spirit of God. So I think it would be inappropriate for me to open up this morning without asking the Holy Spirit to give me an unction so that we can learn more about Him and we can go out of this place being thankful that we learned more about the one who lives and dwells in us. I need a volunteer who will pray for me. Does anybody love me out there? (laughs) What's that? Okay, go ahead, brother. Thank you. Hmm. What distinguishes you and I from anybody else is the Holy Spirit. That's something we need to recognize. What makes you and I different from the world, In Romans chapter 8 is very pronounced about that, that it's the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, who lives and dwells in you. I'm hoping in this message that it can be effective to both you and I, that we might realize where we have failed as believers in the Lord who have the gift of the Holy Spirit in how inoperative He is in our lives. We need to make this practical. What you're seeing behind me is what? Has anybody ever been there? You've been there? Niagara Falls. I've been there. And you've seen pictures of it, I'm sure. The force of the waters that come down the river that goes over the cliff are amazingly powerful. Listen to how Spurgeon utilizes the illustration of Niagara Falls in the following words. It would be a very wonderful thing if one could stand at the foot of the Niagara Falls and could speak a word which should make the river Niagara begin to run upstream rather than downstream and to leap up that great precipice over which it now rolls in stupendous force nothing but the power of god could achieve that marvel but that would be more than a fit parallel to what would take place if the course of your nature were altogether reversed did you get that nothing but the power of god could achieve that marvel but that would be more than a fit parallel To what would take place if the course of your nature were altogether reversed? All things are possible with God. He can reverse the direction of your desires and the current of your life. And instead of going downward from God, He can make your whole being tend upward to God. So these waters illustrate, in Spurgeon's mind, it's a great illustration of the force of the sinful nature of humanity, of your nature and my nature. And if if it was allowed to run its course, it would be a lifetime of sin. But thank God for the intervention of the gospel of Jesus Christ that reversed everything. It's a miracle. You are a miracle of God's. You know, the force of our sinful natures can vary. They All our natures come from the same sewer source, I can call it that, but not all have the same filters. What do I mean by that? Everybody is born in sin. We have a nature that generates out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says. Flows what? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, etc. That's what comes out of the human heart. That's the river Niagara, so to speak, that flows. But in some cases, with some situations of our lives, brought up in a Christian home, maybe in a good neighborhood, having good examples, versus being in a dysfunctional home, growing up in the ghetto, Growing up where crime is all around you, where nobody tells the truth, that everybody's trying to con everybody else, guess what you're going to be like? You're going to be an unfiltered person, and the force of that sinful nature is going to be tremendously powerful. So, when the Spirit comes upon someone who believes in the Lord Jesus, and that's what happens after one believes, it tells us that after that you heard the gospel of your salvation, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, sometimes the Spirit comes down on people in different ways, I think, practically speaking, experientially speaking. Those that have grown up maybe in the ghetto environment with all the hostility and all of the bitterness and all of the the wickedness that grows around them and that gets into their system and comes out of them in a pure sewerage way, When God gets a hold of them, it's a pouncing on that person. The difference would be someone who grows up in a different atmosphere where they are taught morals and they have good principles. they're, They're educated. They've learned things about life and they've put some of those things into practice. It might be a little different. For them, the Spirit comes upon them like a gentle dove. In other words, the change is not as radical outwardly as it would be with someone who lived a very licentious, outwardly wicked lifestyle that one converted, it shows an amazing change and turnaround. Whereas someone that doesn't have that same kind of background, when the Spirit comes upon them, it's more like a gentle dove resting on that individual. You know, some boats have sails, that require heavier winds to blow it. Others, not so much. For the one, it may be the boisterous wind of the Spirit may have to come down upon an individual and give them that radical transformation. And for others, it's more of a gentle breeze that causes the same direction and force of the individual's life, but it's not as radical as the other one may be. So, it's the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that brings life into the soul of a person. That's you could say, it's the life of God in the soul of man. And that's what distinguishes us. Let's talk about regeneration and sanctification for a moment. To help us understand how this works. There's two possibilities of how conversion occurs in a person's life. Two approaches theologically to how how transformation life occurs, how conversion is generated in the heart of a person, the first would be monergism. It really means what does monergism mean? It means one energy, one energy. It is the sole work of God, by the Holy Spirit, who brings about the salvation of a person. Through spiritual regeneration. I want to emphasize that this is the sole work of God. What does it mean to be regenerated? It means that you have been given spiritual life that you did not previously possess. Because the Bible describes us as being dead in trespasses and sins. We have no life. But when the Lord comes into your life, you're quickened with him. You're made alive with him that's a way of describing the word regeneration. Regeneration is attributed solely to God. Whereas the other system of believing how regeneration occurs is this word synergism, which really means a combined energy or double energies. It is defined this way, is when the regenerated person works, in cooperation with the Spirit in the process. Rather, I want to look at this one here. This is the one. Synergism. The human will cooperates with God's grace in order for regeneration to take place. So in other words, in synergism, God does His part and then we have to do our part and the two then combine bringing about regeneration. In this one... Credit is given to at least a degree to the man, to the person, to their human will that is cooperative with God. Whereas in monergism, it's claiming that the work of salvation is occurred and attributed solely to the work of God by the Holy Spirit. To one, there's more praise of man. To the other, there's all praise to God. This is a church that believes in monergism. We believe that it takes the Holy Spirit of God to bring life into the soul. Now that's not to say that the will is inactive. God doesn't like press a button and then we all automatically, robotically sort of start to move because this is how he operates. No, God activates the will of man so that the will of man is operative as God draws that person to himself. But the energy for that, the cause for that, is all credited to God. We thank Him for that. Unfortunately, there's an evangelism out there that promotes this type of evangelism, and oftentimes there's great failure. And one of the ways some of their theologians bail out of this is by saying, well, the person was saved, but then lost their salvation. And I think that's erroneous. Now, but there is something to synergism. And that is this, is when the regenerated person, the one who's already saved, works in cooperation with the Spirit, and we call this the process of sanctification. Once you have the Spirit of God, your will is not stripped. Your personhood, your individuality, your choices, God doesn't coerce you, so to speak, to do something against what your will will be engaged in doing. But God provides to you. Like Paul says, he labored more than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So Paul is certainly not going to take credit, but at the same time we have to credit Paul with saying, praise the Lord that the grace of God worked in you and through you and with you to produce the labors that you gave up for the Lord. So there is expectation in our, our part. And this is something that we all have to take seriously. Even if we are monergistic, we have to see the importance of our yielding. And the scripture uses terms like that for the believer. Our willingness to surrender. Our willingness to say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. To put the seals up and say, Holy Spirit, blow this way. Use me. For your name's sake. Now let's look at, we don't have a lot of time this morning. Let's look at the different ministries of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go into all of these, but there there are abundance of them. And these are probably the most highlighted ones I think that I could think of uh, to just show you uh, off the top of my head and uh, I think hit the major functions, ministries of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, which occurs at conversion. When regeneration occurs by one Spirit, we are all baptized into the one body. So that's how the Spirit operates in that regards. Then we have, and these are not necessarily in in chronological order, the anointing of the Spirit. Every child of God has a degree of anointing of the Spirit. 1 John 2.27 says, The anointing which you have received of him abides in you. And you need not that any man teaches you, but the same anointing which teaches you all things. So every child of God has an anointing of God that gives us this, and a synonym to him it would be an unction. There are special unctions, I recognize that, but generally speaking, every child of God is anointed by the Spirit of God that operates in such a way that we have discernment. Discernment to detect things that are right and wrong. We can have our senses exercised by the anointing of the Spirit of God. We can be prompted by the Spirit of God to say certain things that we might not otherwise be able to say. Jesus said when they deliver you up, don't think beforehand what to say for the Spirit of your father will give you the words at that time that's an anointing let's get to move on here the filling in s's fillings of the spirit everyone at conversion when they're saved have an infilling of the spirit every child of god is full of the spirit but at the same time we are encouraged to be filled with the spirit so there's the initial filling but there's the ongoing fillings of the Spirit. For instance, in Ephesians 5.18, it says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And Paul's already writing to those who he says, After you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. There's no doubt that these believers have the Spirit of God within them, but he's encouraging them to be filled. And to be mocked by being filled. Remember in Acts chapter 6 when the time came, the church had different ministries going on and trying to serve the body and there was a little bit of strife going on and the apostles decided, well, we've got we've to give ourselves to prayer and to the reading of the word, but we need to appoint deacons, servants, ministers who can handle the situation at the time. And they said, choose out among yourselves seven men of good report and what else? and filled with the Holy Spirit. So in some sense, descriptively, some believers can be characterized as ones who are filled with the Spirit. In other words, the evidence of the Spirit being in them is prominent. And they're living their lives in a way like we read in Romans chapter 8. Those that are led by the Spirit. Those that walk in the Spirit. Those that have the Spirit. Versus the carnal mind that's an enmity with God. We're able to cry, Abba, Father, because we have the Holy Spirit of God within us. You cannot or could not have ever called truthfully God your Father unless you have the Holy Spirit. That, that's something to, to make us stop and think about. How many people out there in the world in Christendom are saying, Our Father who art in heaven. Technically and biblically speaking, if they don't have the Holy Spirit they cannot rightfully call God their Father. That's that's kind of humbling, and and that's a tough thing to realize, but it's true. You could say that there's a fatherhood of God as a creator God over humanity, but as far as intimacy and personal relationship, that can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit within you that enables you to call God your Father who is in heaven. I hope that's clear about being filled, we are filled instantly when we're saved, but then there's the ongoing fillings that take place in our life, and those that are filled ongoingly, like in Acts chapter 6, I would say, are those that are characterized by those who are of good report and filled with the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Spirit. We know when we send an envelope, we get an envelope ready to, to be sent off, we have to Lick it, and then we seal it. And it's sealed till the day of its delivery. And that's a wonderful way of understanding our salvation. You got saved, but you're not in heaven yet. And the good news is that you've been sealed the moment you believe the gospel, and you're sealed for heaven. And the seal, you could say, will be broken at that time because the delivery has occurred. And now the fullness of salvation is going to be in full-blown display sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then we have the leading of the Spirit. And I want to talk more about the leading and the walking in the Spirit. These are the practical aspects of life that I want to get into. And Romans chapter 8 hits this very heavily and truthfully. You know, in the contrast, of course, is in chapter 7. And I think, and Pat's brought this out in the past very well. And I remember in that Bible study, Pat, you spoke so well on, uh, on Romans chapter 7, that it's a chapter, that, the second half especially, that's abused and used wrongfully by Christians to say, hey, if Paul had problems in the flesh and those kind of struggles, then I'm expected to do the same. I want to do certain things, but I'm still doing this. I want to do that, but I'm doing that. Ho, ho, wait a <laughs> minute. Romans chapter 8, you could say, is the climax of that struggle. And that's when we get in the ship, you could say. We're, we're tossed to and fro in that act, uh, Romans 7 period, but then once the Spirit comes into the life in fullness, because at, 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 I think there's a pre-Christian state, that's my opinion, in Romans 7 or, or unconverted, whatever you, you may think of that, but I want to certainly emphasize that Romans chapter 8 is sort of like the capstone. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. What's the condemnation? The guilt that one is feeling is being tossed to and fro. The things that he wants to do, he can't do. With the flesh he serves, uh, the f- with his mind he serves the, the law, and with the other he serves the flesh and, and the spirit. And, and he, there's a lot of, you could say, schizophrenia kind of going on in chapter 7. But chapter 8 is a chapter of freedom. We live in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We don't have the carnal mind anymore that's at enmity with God. But we have a mind of the Lord's that is now subject to Him and capable of living and walking in communion with Him. And then last is the gifts of the Spirit. Now that would take a whole sermon and more if we just went into the spiritual gifts. And those are, of course, elaborated on in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, the supernatural gifts that a church like ours and most churches, I I don't know how many churches, I don't want to say, but lots of churches do not practice the spiritual gifts. Uh, There's question about the genuinity of those gifts and the use of those gifts and the cessation of those gifts or the perpetuity of those gifts. So there's a lot there that we could talk about if we wanted to talk about the gifts of the spirit, the supernatural gifts like healings, speaking in tongues, discerning of spirits, interpretation of tongues, etc. Those are all, you could say, extraordinary gifts that are not the common man's, uh, at at the common man's disposal. Um, I don't how deep I would want to get into this even now um i've spoken on it before and done studies on this and uh um i I guess personally, I would fall into the category of saying that i don't think the New Testament teaches or sh- you can be it can be shown that gifts have ceased i I don't think that's provable I think first Corinthians thirteen that talks about um you know now abideth this and that and so on tongues and knowledge it will pass away when that which is perfect is come well what is the perfect that has come some have said it's the canon of the New Testament but the canon of the New Testament developed over a course of time and there was not like one terminus to the canonicity of the New Testament it was delayed you could say it just doesn't fit most, most expositors would not hold to that position. uh, And others would, would say that the gifts of the Spirit petered out over time and they don't exist anymore. Others would say, and I might be in this category, that the usefulness of the gifts have not been prominent in the history of the church ever since the second, third centuries till today. And if we do have the full canon of the Word and those who are speaking in tongues had a word from the Lord or they, we have the word of knowledge of prophesying which are other gifts of the spirit there in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 12 13 and 14 why how would that equal how would that correspond with the writ, written word is this not sufficient is this not adequate so for someone to claim that they have a word from the Lord must be very careful and are they truly do they truly have the gift and is that gift something that I want to trust myself to, or that person who claims to have the gift. There's a lot of subjectivity involved in it, and I could say a lot more about it as I was at Pentecostal at one time, and things that I witnessed and observe, and I love my Pentecostal brothers, and I've been to many of their churches, and I've spoken at them, as a matter of fact, and I have some high regards for many of them. I think they're dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I'm not trying to put them down in any way, but I do think that uh, that's that's a big can of worms there when we when we have an open opportunities in churches for people to prophesy, speak in tongues, interpret tongues, and and I have witnessed firsthand that uh, there's some tough stuff to uh, adhere to when you when you see that going on, and it's uh, questionable. Uh, and That's not to say that the gifts can't still be functional and operative. From my standpoint, what I've seen, I don't see the practicality of it, and I don't want to be overly gullible to what, uh, to me, does not commend itself. But anyway, the reality, the truth is that the Bible does tell us about the Spirit that he has gifts that he gives to his church. And some of those gifts, we, it could be said, have, have uh, vanished or um, have at least been halted. Um, some would say no, they have been revived and so on. Um, it would take a whole little seminar to get into all, all of the details of that. But let's move on a little bit more here um, to talk about um, the actions of the Holy Spirit real quickly. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus. That's one of his primary functions. That Jesus says that he shall bear witness of me. That's, that's one way you can tell when, when true preaching of the Word is happening is when Jesus is being exalted in the messages. But also, the way in which you came to know Jesus in a way personally and why you love Him and cherish Him is because the Spirit has revealed Him to you. And here are some verses if you wanted to look them up. He transforms people's lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here are some other passages. He creates conviction... Jesus said when he is coming, he he will convict the world, or convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That, to me, is a very important one that, as you and I, Paul talks about, you know, my conscience also bearing witness with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit should be so operative in our lives that he's like a censor that governs our thinking and our attitudes and our moods in our actions. We should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit working in those ways in our lives. He gives us assurance. Praise God for the Spirit. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. How do you know you're saved? The Spirit of God dwelling in you gives evidence to you that you are His child. Now, I know there's a subjectivity in, well, is this my spirit or is this the Holy Spirit? You have to make that determination. But I know, like someone put it this way, I know I'm not what I should be. I know I'm not what I'm going to be, but I do know that I'm not what I used to be. I know I'm not what I used to be. Why? Because the Spirit of God has made that difference in my life. He unites believers to one another. Those that are born again love those that are born again because we have the same spirit of life. We're like, you know, people, uh, if you ever traveled out of the country and you meet somebody from, oh, that's where I'm from. Oh, yeah, I'm from Massachusetts. Oh, I live in Worcester. I live in Boston. You feel a little kinship there. But how much more when you meet somebody and, hey, I'm born again. I I was talking to a lady yesterday doing evangelism. Said she was born again. I said, right away, well, your, your father is my father. We're in the same family. Hallelujah to that. He intercedes in our prayer life. Oh, my prayer life. I I often don't articulate words the way they should be. I don't even get get my arrangement of words correct sometimes. But praise the Lord that the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. He, uh, He gives us gifts. We already talked a little bit about that. He empowers us, teaches us, and motivates us. So how real is the Holy Spirit in your life? And with this, I want to bring this to a close. A.W. Toza said, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on, and no one would know the difference. That's it, Brother Barry. That's the one. If the Holy Spirit has been withdrawn from the New Testament church 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Did you get that? Let me repeat that. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church, if we were spiritless, 95% of what we do would go on. What does that mean? That we function somewhat mechanically. We have our daily Bible reading schedule. We go to church. We go to small group of Bible study. We say the right things. We... We, we behave in certain Christian-like ways, and someone can do all of that above and still not have the Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church, 95% of the church today would go on and no one would know the difference. Whereas if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn in the, in the ancient church, 95% of what they would do would stop and everybody would know the difference something to think about so i want to ask the question then is how do we live in the spirit how do we walk in the spirit i feel convicted you know preparing this message i feel like i'm a loser i feel like i've i feel like i'm an undependent person on the holy spirit shame on me that i that, that that's the case and i know the early church was uh, solely dependent on the Spirit, even in the preaching of the Word, even my my everyday life, how much of it is me and how much of it is the Holy Spirit. Now, granted, you know, I'm not expecting the Holy Spirit to... Uh, uh, well, I do pray when I go to bed that the Lord would give me sweet dreams uh, of the things of God. I don't know if that ever happens to you, but it's wonderful when you find yourself in a church setting and you're singing with the saints or or, or whatever you're fellowshipping in your dream. and It's, it, it's glorious. Well, anyway... We just need to, to seek the Lord to be more filled with... How do we abide in Him? Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. Well, the Holy Spirit is that link, you could say, to the Lord that gives us that intimacy of communion and fellowship with Him so that we can be a fruit for Him. And we'll have the most joy that way when we find ourselves communing with the Lord and having that close relationship with Him. We're told in the Bible to grieve not the Holy Spirit. We're told to not quench the Holy Spirit. Wow, those are red flags God puts up in our lives that says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. These are searching questions in our lives. So how then are we going to be filled with the Spirit? Well, I I don't have a shortcut to to that. There's not like one answer to it or even one sermon that, Everybody kind of has to work out, don't we? Our own salvation in fear and trembling. You have your lifestyle, I have my lifestyle. You live over there, I live over here. We have different ages, we have different circumstances of life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we all have to work out our own lives in certain ways. But we are told to be filled with the Spirit. We're told to live in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And you know, when the council saw the disciples after they interviewed them, they said... It says this, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. The Holy Spirit working in our lives will it, will reflect Jesus from us to others because of that inward energy and source of power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that will be demonstrated outwardly. Here's something I came across in reading lately in Don Whitney's book that I've been reading. And I thought this was relevant to what we're talking about this morning and how I would like to end. How do I, practically speaking, you know, sometimes preaching and, and hearing messages um, doesn't have a lot of practical um, import in my life. And it's important that we have application and practical relevance to everyday living. And here's one I think that is uh, relevant like that Hearing God's word, he says, is like. One dip of the tea bag in water. It changes the color of it. You know, there's some effect by one baptism of that tea bag into the water, right? That's what hearing of the word can do. But the reading, studying, and memorizing God's word are like additional plunges of the tea bag into the cup. And it's going to flavor it more. It's going to strengthen the flavor, right? But now, the end of it is this. But meditation is like immersing the bag completely and letting it steep until the rich flavor has saturated the cup of hot water. You know, in the book of James, there's a rebuke there about the man that looks at the word of God and he sees his face like in a mirror And he goes away and he forgets what that mirror showed him, what he looks like. That's how sometimes we read the word. We read it and say, oh, I've read my Bible today, amen, good. But wait a minute, what did you get out of the Bible? The brother says, it's good if you read a portion of the word, a daily reading, three or four chapters or whatever it is. Try to at least pick one theme, one verse, one word that you can meditate and take with you the rest of the day. I was reading in jo- I've been reading in Joshua lately, and you know that famous verse that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Love that verse. We should have that. We have that in our, a plaque in our house. That, that's great. Every Christian home should, if not have it, think about it as being there all the time. But it prece- the words that precede it, Joshua says, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Here it goes. This is your choice. Do you want to worship the gods on the other side of the river? Or do you want to worship the God on this side of the river? And I never thought of it so profoundly, and, and it's been on my mind thinking about that. That here, like I think in the way in we, w- which we try to uh, edify each other, I don't want to give a bunch of rules and say, come on, this is how you're going to be a good Christian if you do this and this and this. But wait a minute, you have your choices. Who do you want to serve? Is it the gods of the past or the God, the true and living God of the present? I just like the way Joshua presents it. Sort of like, okay, where are you at? Which gods in God do you want to serve? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. As for you, you make your choice. What God? Do we want to walk in the Spirit? Do we want to live in the Spirit? If God's given us the Spirit and He's changed our lives... He knows what's best. And what's best for Him is what's best for us. It's going to be joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Because the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in our life. And who doesn't want to have all those virtues? That comes from communion with the Spirit. And who we are told, by the way, to love the Spirit. A love of the Spirit. It says in Romans 15 don't often think about it. We think about love of God, the love of Jesus, but the love of the Spirit. I hope that today, somehow, some way, God would use something that was said that would prick our consciences and would give us a desire to want to be believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Can somebody say amen? amen. All right, I'm going to close in prayer, and our triette is going to come up here, and we're going to close with our final song. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, from the book of Romans, chapter 8, that there is no condemnation. But, Lord, we are those who have the Spirit, who live in the Spirit, that the carnal mind is a thing of the past. And, Lord, we pray that we would be ones that put on the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would live the life to the fullest, Lord, to your glory and honor. Help us, Lord, to search our hearts. Search them, O God, we pray thee, so that we can know if there's any wicked way in us that you would lead us in the way everlasting. So, Father, thank you for your precious word. Bless your church family here. Help us all individually, some that are struggling more than others, some that are having difficulties. Lord, may your spirit minister to them powerfully and give them a great sense of his love and presence with them as we give you praise and worship in Jesus' worthy and precious name. Amen. And our final song is, Revive Us Again. <laughs> appropriate, I hope. Let's sing together. Praise the old God. Oh, okay, sorry. For, for the, the son, son of God. Thy Love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above.